0: Good morning, if you could all please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I'll be reading from chapter 24, verses 32 through 44. Now hear the words of the Lord. When the fig tree, lo- from the fig tree learn its lesson, as soon as its branches become tender and puts on leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, there was eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the fields. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will will be grinding at the mill. One shall be taken, and the other left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the day or the hour when your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the man of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at at an hour that you do not expect. Now let all God's people say, Amen.
1: Amen. You may be seated and let's pray together as we come to God's word. Our God and our Father, we do rejoice to say amen to Your Word. We do again acknowledge that we need Your help in understanding Your Word, and especially Your help, Father, in convicting our hearts, our souls, of the truth of Your Word and transforming our lives to become more and more in conformity with what Your Word reveals to us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, be with us today and illuminate the meaning of these words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And impress upon our minds and our hearts the import of these words. And continue to use your living and active word to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds. And so, Father, we want to not just be hearers of your word. We want more and more to be doers of your word. People whose lives reflect a supreme confidence and reverence for the holy word of God to which we come this morning. And as we come, we pray. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, one of the biggest problems when it comes to interpreting passages of Scripture in the Word of God, especially in places where things are a little bit difficult to understand, one of the biggest problems in understanding what they mean and also in applying the truth of these passages of Scripture to our lives comes from from isolating certain statements of Scripture, certain verses, from the verses that are around them so that we're not reading them and understanding them in the context that they were originally spoken in or written in. So for instance... A lot of times in churches that emphasize the so-called prosperity gospel, health, wealth, and prosperity, that if you trust God, He'll make you prosperous in your life, in this world, and keep you from anything bad happening. In churches that like to teach that kind of false gospel, they like to quote Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And a lot of people like to quote that verse outside of the context in which it was written as if those words weren't spoken by God at a specific time and in a specific circumstance and most importantly to a specific and particular group of people. And so then the verse just gets co-opted and and quoted as this general religious aphorism to try to encourage people that God always intends all of us to prosper and never intends any of us to suffer, which certainly isn't what Scripture teaches. Or when certain basketball players like to stencil the words of Paul in Philippians 4.13 on their Basketball shoes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, I love that he's, he's not ashamed to proclaim his faith in Christ in public, but Philippians 4.13 has got absolutely nothing to do with shooting three-pointers. The context clearly shows that Paul is talking about depending on the strength of Christ in order to endure all kinds of suffering and persecution in this world for the sake of the gospel. That's what Christ strengthens us to be able to do. Not win championships in the NBA. So we can't be isolating verses and statements from their context or else we don't understand what they mean and then we can't live according to and abide by the truth that God is revealing. Now the passage that we're going to focus on here today in Matthew 24 is another place where there's been a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of different interpretation, a good amount of confusion. Which I think can be avoided just by making sure that we're reading everything within the context that Jesus spoke these words to his disciples in originally. And when we understand that, the message that Jesus is proclaiming here is actually a very simple one, but a very, very important one. And the specific verses that that I think have been the source, not just I think, that have been the source of some confusion and different interpretation are verses 33 and 34 here, where Jesus says to His disciples, So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, He's talking to His disciples 2,000 years ago on the Mount of Olives, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. When you read those words, there's a number of questions that pop up into our minds. And the three most important ones in terms of understanding Jesus' words are these. Number one, verse 33 says, when you see all these things, what things? When you see all of what things does Jesus mean? Then secondly, in verse 34, he says, This generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. What generation? What does that mean? And then, are all these things at the end of verse 34 the same things as all these things at the beginning of verse 33? That's another important question. And and even as I pose those questions, the answers to those questions might seem like they're pretty obvious to you. Obviously, when Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, obviously, he's talking about the generation of the disciples that he's talking to, meaning that they're going to be alive to see all these things, right? And obviously, all these things means the same things in both verses. And obviously, all of those things mean all of the things that Jesus has been talking about in all of the previous verses that we've already been looking at in Matthew Chapter 24, right? Obviously, here's the thing. If verse 33, when Jesus says, when you see all these things, if that means all the things, including the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem, the great tribulation that's going to come after that, and Jesus' second coming, which hasn't happened yet, with the sun and the moon, going dark and all the stars falling out of the sky, if all these things means all those things, then how could Jesus say this generation 2,000 years ago will not pass away if this generation means the generation of the disciples that he was talking to 2,000 years ago? Because obviously none of those guys are still alive and a lot of the things that Jesus told him about still haven't happened. So see the confusion? Well, here's the deal. Some people teach that all of the things have already happened, including the second coming of Jesus, and that all of that happened at 70 AD with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem within the lifetime of these disciples. But that teaching flatly contradicts so many of Jesus' teaching about what His second coming will be like And what it will involve. And especially that it will bring about the end of the world immediately. Not only in this chapter, but in other scriptures too. All the things that are going to happen when Jesus returns and the end of the world comes and the dead are raised out of their graves and all of that. We have to, given all of that context from the rest of scripture, we've got to reject the idea that Jesus has already returned And that he did so within the lifetimes of his disciples that he was talking to here in Matthew chapter 24. So how do we understand it then? Well, some other people teach that Jesus thought all of those things were going to happen within the lifetime of his disciples. Including his second coming, including the resurrection of the dead, including the end of the world. Jesus really thought that that was all going to happen before his disciples were dead, that they'd be witness to all of that, but he was mistaken. Some people actually teach. And I don't need to tell you why we need to reject that heresy. So, other people teach that all of the things that Jesus described in the verses above here in Matthew 24, all of it has only to do with the destruction of the temple and that none of what Jesus has said here has to do with his second coming which I find very difficult to accept because clearly he talks about the coming of the Son of Man in verse 27, which will immediately follow the tribulation that he describes and will include these signs in the heavens in verses 29 through 31. There's just no way to exclude his second coming and the end from all the things that he tells his disciples about very simply because, because he says that those verses include his second coming. And the end. And then there's lots of other interpretations too, because it's tough to understand, see, exactly what Jesus did mean in verses 33 and 34. Some people, like the New Testament scholar William Hendrickson, teach that the word generation that Jesus uses in verse 34 doesn't refer here to the chronological generation of his disciples at that specific time, but is actually a way of referring to the Jewish nation as a whole. So what Hendrickson teaches is that Jesus is trying to reassure his disciples that even though Jerusalem is going to get destroyed and there's going to be great tribulation, he's trying to assure them that that doesn't mean the Jewish people are going to be completely eradicated. There's still going to be Jewish people in the world to see all of the things, including his second coming, when he comes, whenever he comes. He actually makes a pretty solid argument. And and I think it's true that there will be Jewish people in the world still when Jesus returns. But honestly, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying in verse 34. Do you? And I think if it was what Jesus wanted to say in verse 34, he could have found a lot clearer of a way to say that than what he actually says here. One other interpretation, which also might have some merit to it, is this. When Jesus says, this generation will not pass away, in verse 34, some people teach he's not referring to the generation of his disciples 2,000 years ago, but to the generation during the Great Tribulation, in the future, immediately before Jesus returns. He's not saying your generation will not pass away, guys. He's saying this generation in this future time that I'm talking about won't pass away. And that kind of does correspond to what he said earlier, that that this massive global persecution which breaks out when the Antichrist comes isn't going to succeed in destroying all of the elect because Jesus is going to come and put a stop to it and, and gather all of his elect from all the corners of the earth so that they won't be totally destroyed. So maybe, but, but the problem with that interpretation is that means that none of what Jesus is saying to His disciples 2,000 years ago actually has any relevance to the disciples 2,000 years ago. Because it's not their generation that He's even talking about. And yet, He says to them down in verse 44, You, you guys, must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. All kinds of difficulties, see? It's not an easy one. And honestly, there isn't one single interpretation of these verses that has zero difficulties, which is why there are all the other interpretations. But there is one that I think makes the best sense. In the context of everything that Jesus is teaching here, and especially in the context of what He says in the verse right before, the confusing ones, verses 33 and 34. So look at it with me together here today, and I think we're going to be able to understand, and I know that even if it's still hard to understand, there is an ultimate message that Jesus is proclaiming here that is massively profitable for us. So remember, all of this is in the context of those questions that the disciples had asked Jesus up in verse 3 about when the temple was going to be destroyed and what would be the signs of His coming and the end of the age. All of that is in view. All of that is what we've been learning about all throughout this chapter so far. And we've seen things that would not be signs of the end. And we've seen things that would signal the coming destruction of the temple. And we've seen, most importantly, that the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD was a, remember this word, proleptic, looking forward, a a proleptic foreshadowing of a much greater tribulation that would come before the coming of Jesus and the end of the world, something that's still in our future. And it's that connection of anticipation, the connection between what happened in 70 AD and what will happen just before Jesus comes. It's that connection that Jesus has been making all along, the proleptic connection between the abomination of desolation in Jerusalem in 70 AD, anticipating the much greater abomination that the Antichrist will be, the tribulation in 70 AD, anticipating the much greater tribulation like the world has never seen or will never see again At the end, it's that connection of foreshadowing that Jesus has been talking about all along, which is what helps us understand what he means here in verses 33 through 35. So with all that as the context... The temple of Jerusalem is going to get destroyed. That's going to anticipate the rise of Antichrist later in the Great Tribulation and the second coming of Christ many years later. With all that in mind, now Jesus says to his disciples in verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is already Not yet. Near. Now I've got a pretty big fig tree out here at the very end of my house. And as it turns out, the climate here in coastal central California is actually pretty similar to the climate in Israel where where Jesus was when he was looking at a fig tree and, and making this illustration to his disciples. So fig trees act pretty similarly here as to the way they act there our fig tree gets ripe fruit on the branches and falling off the branches and into the yard in October, after summer, in the fall. And then at the beginning of winter, all of the leaves fall off and the branches kind of become dark gray and they kind of toughen up. And then Just like Jesus is describing here in this little analogy, there comes this time during the spring when the branches start to kind of green up and soften up again. They become tender and new leaves start to bud on the tree. The fruit's not there yet, but the leaves start to come. And that's when you know that summer is right around the corner. It's not there yet, but summer's coming when the leaves come on the fig tree. So the point of this little analogy is very, very simple. The signs of spring point to the certainty of summer. That's how you understand this whole passage. The signs of spring point to the certainty of summer. It's coming. It's not here yet, but it's certainly coming. Then, so, in verse 33, when Jesus says, "...when you see all these things..." you know that he is not here yet, but near at the very gates. You get it? He's making the same point that he made with the analogy of the fig tree. The signs of spring point to the certainty of summer. With the fig tree, the signs of spring are the tender branches and the leaves that appear, and the summer comes a little later, right? It's not not that when the branches soften and the leaves bloom, it's already summer. It's that summer's coming, certainly. Same thing in verse 33. Signs of spring point to the certainty of summer. I think what Jesus means is this. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that's the tender branches and the sprouting of leaves. Those are the signs of spring, the, the destruction of the temple, which points to the certainty of the coming summer, which is the coming of Him, the coming of the Son of Man, later in power and in great glory. And the whole point that Jesus wants to make here has to do with the certainty of His coming. Not the exact timing of it, but the certainty of it. That's the central message that Jesus wants them and us to grab hold of and live in light of in this whole chapter and especially now in this passage here. So verse 34, with all that in mind, To his disciples 2,000 years ago, the guys who had asked him when the temple would get destroyed, what would be the signs of his coming at the end, Jesus now says, truly I say to you, this generation, their generation, then 2,000 years ago, your generation's not going to pass away until these things take place. And I think what he means is that a lot of them are going to live the 37 more years until 70 AD to see the signs of spring to see the tender branches and the budding leaves, to see the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, which will make certain the coming of the later thing, the coming of summer, the coming of Christ at the end, in all His glory to bring about the end of this age and this world and the beginning of a new heavens and a new earth. They're not going to see that in their lifetime. They're going to see the signs of that in their lifetime. And that's going to give them certainty that He is coming And they're going to have to live their lives in light of that certainty and that coming reality. So that's it, right? The tender branches and leaves come before summer arrives later. The destruction of the temple comes before the coming of the Son of Man at the end later. Some of His disciples are going to live to see the signs which will point them to the certainty of His coming. And they point us to that certainty too. As we read in his God-breathed word here, Jesus' prophetic prediction of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple that he made 37 years before it actually happened and was fulfilled. And so far, 2,000 years before the summer of his return, his appearing, which remains our blessed hope. And it's the certainty of that hope, it's the certainty of his coming that he wants for all of his disciples to embrace and to rest in. And so he says in verse 35, look, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You can stake eternity on these words. His word tells us that heaven and earth will pass away. We've seen it already here. We've seen it in Revelation 6. We've seen it in 2 Peter 3. We've seen it in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. We can be certain that the end of this world is coming when He comes. And we can be certain that there is nothing in this whole world that is more certain. There is nothing in this world that is worthy of anchoring our hope to more than His coming because everything in this world is going to pass away. But His Word will never pass away. His Word is the only sure, firm, unshakable foundation of hope which will never pass away. So, all of that carries us right into the main point that Jesus wants to impress upon us here, which is this in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour when He returns... No one knows. No one knows exactly when. And Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you. In fact, Jesus says, not even the angels in heaven know. And in fact, Jesus says to his disciples 2,000 years ago, I'll tell you what, guys, as I've come down from heaven, as I've emptied myself, as Philippians chapter 2 says, which doesn't mean he stopped being God. It means that those attributes of God, like omniscience, He still had, but he gave up the independent use of that while he was on this earth. So he says, I don't even know when the final day of my return will be. Right now, as I stand on this earth, guys, only the Father knows. And he's not telling you. And there's a reason he's not telling you. Concerning that day and hour of his return, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. There's a reason Jesus doesn't want us to know exactly when he's returning, and that's what this passage is all about. The signs of spring make certain the coming of summer. And when you're certain summer is coming, there's certain things that you need to do to be preparing for it, and that's the point. Even though we can't possibly know when summer is coming exactly, we need to cling to the certainty and it needs to give shape and form to our lives every day that we live in this passing world. Now, I don't need to tell you that there will be, and there are, and there always have been, a lot of people who absolutely ignore verse 36 where Jesus says nobody knows, only the Father knows, the day when Jesus will return. There's a lot of people that just ignore that verse outright and presume to predict the precise time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's been going on all throughout the church age. As early as 500 A.D., a group of theologians predicted that Jesus would return sometime that year. One of them made his prediction based on adding up all of the measurements of Noah's Ark and doing some kind of esoteric computation in his mind that he imagined made a connection between whatever dimension that was and the timing of Jesus' return. And guess what? He was way off. Totally wrong. And then, But it kept happening. All throughout history, dozens of people have made predictions. All of them, of course, have turned out to be wrong as to when Jesus would return. Most recently, probably the most familiar name in, in our time has been the name of Harold Camping, right here in the Bay Area, family radio, right? Who taught that Jesus would return, for sure, in 2011. And many people were led astray by, by that false prediction. A guy named Ronald Weinland also got it wrong in 2011 and when it didn't happen that day he changed the day oh well I was off by a little bit so now it's going to be this day and he was wrong then so he made another prediction and he was wrong then and finally you know what happened Ron Weinland got arrested for tax evasion because all along he had stopped paying his taxes because Jesus is coming right I don't need to pay taxes anymore because Jesus is coming so they threw him in jail for three and a half years. The televangelist Jack Van Impe got it wrong in 2012, along with a lot of other things that he gets wrong about the Word of God. Jean Dixon, the self-proclaimed psychic, predicted Jesus was coming back in 2020. She got it wrong. That can't be good for business, right, when you're a psychic? Didn't stop her. And there are others. And there always will be others who try to use some strange interpretation of God's word to deduce the timing of Jesus' coming. And when it comes to this verse here, verse 36, here's what they do with it. They either ignore it wholesale, just pretend it's not there, or, or when somebody says, hey, Jesus says you can't make predictions, then they try to go, well, actually what Jesus says is that no one knows the day and the hour. And I'm not trying to say what time of day, what hour, I'm just saying the day. So they say as long as you only predict the day and not also the hour, or if you just predict the month or if you just predict the year, then you're all good. Except that they're not all good because they're all wrong. And they're missing the whole point of Jesus' words here. Jesus is saying, I don't want anybody to know. Exactly when I'm returning. God the Father doesn't want you to know exactly when Jesus is returning and there's good reason for it and that's what this passage is all about. The signs of spring have made certain the coming of summer but He doesn't want to tell us precisely when He's coming because He wants us to live always, every day, until He comes in the expectation and the anticipation of His coming so that when the things happen that have to happen, which He's already told us about, before He returns, the, the tribulation and the persecution, all of that, we won't just be expecting them, we'll be prepared for them, because we've been being preparing for them. Do you understand? We'll be able to endure them, when they happen, and when he returns, because we've been making preparation all along. Because when you know something's going to happen, it's really easy to go, oh, well, I've got 100 years to worry about that. I'm not going to prepare, right? Preparedness doesn't come automatically, does it? If you live on the east coast of Florida, and they say, oh, man, there's a monster hurricane, and it's heading right for your city and you just sit out on your deck and don't do anything to get ready, no storm shutters, you don't stock supplies, you don't make a a plan to evacuate, if you you don't make any preparation, then when the storm comes and you go, oh man, I better get ready, it's too late, right? That's Jesus' point. You can't sit around and wait to be prepared, you have to be preparing because preparedness doesn't come automatically. It's a process that has to be perpetual or else when the thing you need to be prepared for happens, you won't be prepared. Think about the poor people of West Maui. That community was absolutely unprepared for the wildfire that wiped out their whole town and took so many lives, we don't even know how many yet. Right? The power company hadn't prepared their equipment properly. Hadn't maintained it properly. Hadn't made a plan for whether or not to shut it off when 85 mile an hour winds came whipping through. The emergency response system and the people running it hadn't maintained preparedness. They knew from past wildfires... That certain kinds of grass that weren't native to the area were growing and becoming invasive and they were very flammable and that could be a big problem, but they didn't do anything about it. There were things that could be done. There were things that needed to be done, but nobody did those things. So when the fire came, it's too late. The whole community was unprepared. The whole community was consumed. Do you see Jesus' point? This is exactly what He's exhorting His disciples, us included, to. He has established a certainty of the coming tribulation and of His coming at the very end. But He doesn't want us to know exactly when it is because He doesn't want us sitting around to the last second. He wants us to be making preparation. Perpetually. Perpetually. He wants the certainty of His coming to define the way we live our lives every single day until He comes. Otherwise, we won't be prepared at all when the tribulation, immediately before His coming, falls upon us. And listen, when that day comes, there's going to be a lot of people who call themselves Christians, who are very religious, who read their Bibles and go to Bible studies and pray and go to church, but they're not preparing And in all of the, the, the relative comfort and ease that we still enjoy in America right now, they're not, they're not living in a, a, a constant state of readiness and preparedness. And then when the comfort disappears, when the persecution rages like a wildfire, those people who weren't prepared, who thought maybe they were followers of Jesus, those are going to be the ones who fall away. Those are going to be the ones who can't take the heat of the persecution. Those are going to be the ones who aren't prepared to count that cost. And they'll end up falling away from Jesus and betraying Jesus and then facing Jesus as an enemy when he returns. Preparedness is a perpetual process. There's your alliteration for the day. Preparedness is a perpetual process precisely because we don't know exactly when he's coming. We only know with more certainty than we know anything else in this world. We only know that he is coming because his word, which will never pass away, has made it very, very clear. Now Jesus himself uses illustrations of this point that are way better than the ones I've used. And verses 37 through 44. The first illustration that Jesus uses is from the days of Noah, way back in the book of Genesis, right? When God sent the great flood upon the earth. Most people who lived on the earth at that time weren't prepared for the flood, were they? Look what Jesus says. For as were in the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they, the rest of them, they were all unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. there will be a bunch of people who aren't prepared. Now Jesus doesn't mean that eating and drinking and getting married are bad things, are sinful things at all. He gives us food. He gives us drink. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And godly marriages are themselves designed by God to be a picture of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. They're not bad things, they're normal things, they're good things, they're they're gifts that God gives for us to enjoy in this world, but what Jesus means is that in Noah's day, people were so concerned with the ordinary things of life in this world, so focused on their everyday concerns, so concerned with the gifts of this world that they had become negligent of the giver. They weren't worshiping Him, they weren't listening to Him, they weren't honoring Him, trusting Him, following Him, serving Him. They were living their lives as if the things of this world are the things that matter the most. That's what I want all of us to ask ourselves today in light of this passage. How are you living your life? What are the things that we're doing? What are the things that we're occupying ourselves with on a day-by-day basis say about our priorities? Do the things of this world matter the most to us or do the things of eternity matter more to us? And is that evidenced somehow in the way we're living? That's what Jesus is talking about here in terms of the days of Noah. When the flood was coming, the people in the world were so consumed with their own priorities, their own desires, that they were completely oblivious to the fact that there was a flood coming. And so when it started raining, nobody had a boat. And it was too late to build one. And so they all got swept away. Except for Noah and his family, who also ate food, right? who also drank drink, right? Who also got married and Noah gave his sons to be married. But they also, while they were living in this world and attending to the daily concerns, devoted themselves over a long period of time to build a boat, to build an ark. Because God said a flood's coming. And you can't wait until two days before the flood's coming to start building a boat that big, can you? And if they did wait, they would be unprepared. If they weren't making preparation for a long time, from the moment God said the flood's coming until the flood came, they would get swept away by the flood. They had to be diligent perpetually in order to make sure they were ready when the rains came and the flood mounted or it would be too late. So will the coming of the Son of Man be, Jesus says. And he just means this, he's told us he's coming in final judgment, but he will not tell us exactly when so that we will be living our lives in a constant state of preparation and preparedness, not procrastinating, not occupying ourselves so much with our own priorities and desires and the things of this world mostly that it's as if those things are what matter to us the most. So ask yourself that. What matters to me the most? How is that evidenced in the way I'm living? How does it give shape to the actual course of my life, my days? Because if we're not attending to our souls, if we're not attending to our faith, then we're not going to be prepared when the real rains of tribulation start falling, when the true fires of persecution start burning. We're certainly not going to be prepared when the Son of Man comes. And those who aren't prepared will be swept away that's what Jesus means in verses 40 and 41 look at those he's talking about judgment just like in the days of Noah when the flood swept unprepared people away into everlasting death right two men will be in the field and one will be taken away because he's not ready he's not prepared two women will be grinding at the mill one will be taken away just like the people in the days of Noah who had no boat were taken away The ones who will be taken are the ones who will be unprepared, like in Noah's day, swept away by the coming tribulation and by the coming judgment of God's wrath. Are you prepared? And since we can't know when Jesus is coming, the only answer to that question, are you prepared? The only answer is with the real question, are you preparing every day? Are you living your life in perpetual Preparedness, not like a monk up in a monastery, never doing anything in this world, never enjoying anything, never eating anything tasty, never having any fun, but what matters most to you? Are you in the midst of the concerns of life in this world that God has given us to be concerned with? Are you building the ark of your faith at the same time? Are you daily growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are you daily feeding your soul with the true food and the, and the true drink of the Word of God which is living and active? Are you daily putting on the full armor of God? Are you daily putting sin to death which dwells in your mortal body? Are you daily putting on the righteousness of Christ like Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 3? Are you daily growing in holiness? Are you daily seeking first as the priority the kingdom and the righteousness of God and trusting Him for the earthly things that we need? Are you being primarily occupied with the eternal things as if eternity depended on it and then only being secondarily occupied with the things of this world? Do you see how backwards we are so often? We give all our attention to the things that Jesus says will for sure pass away. But we act like those things matter the most. But they're going to pass away. And then we give very little attention comparatively to the things that are eternal and that matter for eternity. You see how backwards we are? Are you preparing perpetually and persistently, diligently? Are you living as if the things of this world are the things that matter the most? And if you are, then you're like the people in the days of Noah. Jesus says in verse 43, the second illustration, therefore stay awake. Not just wake up, but stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And you can say, well, hey, I've been paying attention to Matthew 24 all along, and I know that it's not going to be until Satan is loosed and the Antichrist comes and all the nations of the world try to destroy every last Christian on the planet. But listen, if you wait for those things to start to happen, then you're going to be like the people in Noah's day who had no boat and no time to build one when the rains started to fall. You'll fall away. Because you're not prepared to endure that heat and count that cost. And then you'll get swept away when the Son of Man returns immediately after the tribulation of those days. So are you preparing as if eternity depended on it because it does? Or are you living like they did in the days of Noah? Jesus says, stay awake because you know he's coming. You just don't know when. So you have to stay awake. You get his illustration? If you know that there's going to be a thief who's going to break into your house tonight, and you know that he's coming at 3.45 a.m., you can set an alarm. You can go to sleep, and you can set an alarm for 3.40 a.m. and wake up in time to stop the thief coming, right? Right? But if you know that a thief is coming and you don't know exactly when he's coming, what do you have to do? Stay awake all night long, Christians. Stay awake all night long. You can't go to sleep because you can't afford to be asleep when the thief comes. So, verse 43, know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and ...and would not have let his house be broken into. But you don't know. Therefore you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect... So stay awake all night. See, Jesus' is coming is like the thief in the night, and what that means is explicitly clear here. It means that this whole age that we're living in, the whole span of your life, from the moment God raised you to newness of life through faith in Christ Jesus until the moment he either returns or you die, that's the night. And the thief could come at any minute in the night. And you don't know when, so you have to stay spiritually awake All night long. The whole time of our lives in this world has to be lived in constant spiritual wakefulness. You you can't be spiritually lazy and lackadaisical and sort of sauntering around this world going, I got time. Because you don't know that you have time. Perpetual preparedness, regular readiness. You can't afford to sleep in this world or you won't be ready. You can't afford to live in spiritual complacency. You can't afford to make the things of this world your main concern six days out of the week and then go, I'm going to go to church for an hour and a half or two hours and I'll be all good. Because the currents of darkness and deception and temptation in this world are so strong that if you're complacent, if you're not constantly rowing your boat upstream, you're going to get swept back over the falls. If you're not constantly making preparation, you won't be ready. If you live that way, then it means you care more about this world than about eternity. And those are exactly the people who are going to fall away. Antichrist is coming. He's not here yet. And yet, John says in 1 John chapter 2, many antichrists already are. Full of false teaching, full of deception, that if you're not being diligent to know God's word back and forward and be confident in what it teaches you may get swept away by the growing tide and the rising tide of the false teachings of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist, 1 John 4, it's been sowing darkness and deception and corruption in this world for 2,000 years already. Are you preparing for when the real deal comes? The ultimate Antichrist. The great tribulation, unlike this world has ever seen, it's coming, but already we live in an age of growing tribulation. Are you preparing to be able to endure the worst tribulation you've ever imagined? The apostasy is coming, and already clearly there is growing apostasy festering in the church of Jesus Christ. Droves of people who call themselves followers of Jesus are running headlong after every kind of false teaching and every kind of doctrinal distortion and every kind of moral perversion even. They're hanging up the pride flags in their churches even as we speak. The things that used to be unimaginable are now mainstream. And the worst is yet to come. The leading edge of the storm is already howling. So are you making preparation for when the full-blown hurricane makes landfall in this world? Because if you wait until it does, you're not going to survive it. If you try to sleep until the thief comes, you're not going to be ready. And you're going to wake up and everything's going to be gone. Are you preparing? The message is as simple as that. And as we close, I just want you to listen to Paul's words to the Christians in Ephesus in terms of how you can be preparing. Ephesians chapter 6, you know these words. Just listen to them. We won't exposit them, they speak for themselves. Finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. And all of these verbs, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 6, are verbs that mean do it now and keep doing it. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil now and as they increase. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly places. Therefore, you must right now take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day when it's at its worst and having done everything to make preparation all along that you may be able to stand firm. Stand now, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of of righteousness, holiness, obedience to God. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer, with all supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Stay awake Don't fall asleep. Don't let yourself doze off. If you need caffeine shots from the Word of God, take them regularly. If you need to slap yourself awake with the Word of God, do it regularly. If there are areas of your life that are not under the obedience of the Lordship and the law and the holiness of Jesus Christ, deal with them. Repent of them. Mortify them and be mortifying them so that you can be persevering because otherwise when all hell breaks loose, you won't persevere. Are you preparing? Are you standing strong daily in the strength of His might? Are you standing daily against all of the schemes of the devil? Or is he being successful in lulling you to sleep and in seducing you into the ideas and the ideologies And the values of this fallen world, and thinking it's not so bad. We can make peace with the world. We can broker peace with this evil generation. Are you wrestling daily against these cosmic forces and powers that preside over this present spiritual darkness? Are you dressed daily in all of the fullness of God's armor? Or are you like a silly soldier who likes to go running around in your loincloth and then all of a sudden you find yourself in the midst of people with swords and arrows? Truth, righteousness, gospel readiness, faith, salvation, the Word of God, unceasing prayer. Are you ready? Are you dressed? Are you prepared? Are you awake? Are you alert constantly with all perseverance? Is that your life? It can't just be some, some spiritual extracurricular activity. It's got to be your life, soldiers, because we're at war and the King is coming. So let's all pray together for strength, for wisdom, for courage, to be prepared and to be preparing persistently for His appearing. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, these are serious words that you left with your disciples 2,000 years ago. And we pray, Holy Spirit, convict us of their seriousness and sober us by these words and give us grace and give us sobriety in our minds and our hearts and give us urgency in our lives to be preparing every day, to stay awake every day, to be alert all the time, to be effective lights in the darkness for the glory of your kingdom to be waging war against the devil and resisting his schemes. Oh, Father, prepare Your church for the days are evil. And we ask for grace, and we ask for truth, and we ask for faith, and we ask for strength, and we ask for courage. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.